let's take our Bibles this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Acts chapter 21 this morning. <coughs> Acts chapter 21. And we're just going to read from verse 15 and then we'll open in a word of prayer. Acts 21 verse 15 says, And after those days... We took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. And there went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Manasin of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And let's open a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the great privilege it is to gather together to worship you and to come and learn more about you from your word. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would instruct us and teach us uh, through the passage before us, that Lord, you refresh us through your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that indeed this morning it would be your words, it would be your thoughts and not my own. And uh, Lord, you would empower me through the spirit now to speak as only you can. And Lord, we pray that you bless our time now, may you receive all the glory and all the honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last Sunday, of course, we <clears throat> were in Acts chapter 21, and we saw that Paul and his companions, they're continuing their journey to Jerusalem, okay? And we saw that they finally arrived in Syria by a ship. They've landed in Syria, and they're now nearing the end of that, that journey back to Jerusalem uh, to deliver the love gift from the Gentile churches, and we saw that both in the city of Tyre and in the city of Caesarea, they uh, were warned, okay, well, Paul was warned by believers about what was to come in Jerusalem. The, the Spirit had evidently revealed unto them something concerning the future, and they warned Paul, and, and we saw that because of their love and concern, they pleaded with Paul not to go. But Paul was convinced it was God's will that, that he go to Jerusalem, and so Paul wouldn't be turned aside yeah, these warnings from the Spirit were given by God to prepare him for what was ahead. And in verse 15, we now read that they leave Caesarea and they're making their final uh, stretch of the journey to Jerusalem. Okay, it says there in verse 15, after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. Now Luke says here they took up our carriages. Now that's one Greek word. And the word literally means that they packed their baggage they packed their baggage. But the reason it's translated as carriages here is because the Greek actually allows for the possibility that they hired horses, okay, and they packed the horses. And so there is a possibility here that they actually are traveling via horse as they go down to Jerusalem. And if they went on foot, it would have been about four days. If they went on horseback, it would have been two days, okay. And so now that's why it's translated as carriages here because that is the possibility, okay. They have taken up carriages in that sense to travel this last stretch. And verse 16 tells us that, you know, there's a company of people traveling, okay? It says there in verse 16, They went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Manasin of Cyprus, an old disciple, with whom we should lodge. So there's a, there's a group accompanying him, okay? There's more added to his party that he already had. There's more people joined with him. They're all going to Jerusalem. And we're told the name of one man in particular, Manasin of Cyprus, and he's said to be an old disciple 
Now, that's not referring to his age here, okay? It's not saying that he's an old man. It's actually saying that he's, he's an old disciple in the sense that he's one of the original disciples from the day of Pentecost, is what most commentators believe. And so he's been a Christian for a long time, okay? You could, you could almost say he was a charter member of the early church, okay? And that's what it's talking about here. And the plan was that they were going to stay with this man, Manasin. They're going to lodge with him. And so evidently he has uh, a fair bit of, his, uh, of resources to provide, doesn't he? Okay, this is a large party. And so obviously he has a, a house in Jerusalem and he has the, the resources to accommodate Paul and his companions while they're in Jerusalem. And upon their arrival in Jerusalem, we're told in verse 17 that they are received with joy okay it says in verse 17 and when we come to jerusalem the brethren received us gladly and so this would sort of seem to be an informal meeting okay they've arrived in the city they're catching up with friends if you like meeting new friends they're they're received gladly it's a time of fellowship amongst the believers but the next day however paul is brought before well paul comes before the elders of the church at jerusalem and he has a formal meeting with them, And that's verse 18 and following. But verse 18 says, <clears throat> And the day following, Paul went up, sorry, Paul went in with us unto James and to all the elders, that's uh, sorry, and all the elders were present. And so here we see there's a formal meeting. Paul comes before, the, before James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, and the elders, the other uh, pastors there, and he has a formal meeting with these leaders. And it's this formal meeting that I want us to consider this morning, I want us to focus our attention on the, the formal meeting here and the results of this meeting. Is that loud for anybody else? Very loud for me. <clears throat> First of all, here this morning, we see that Paul reports on the work. Paul reports on the work. Look at there in verse 18 again. It says, In the day following, Paul went in with us under James, and to all the elders, sorry, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. We'll stop there. So Paul here reports on the work. Okay? In verse 19, it's, we read that he basically comes in, he salutes them, and then he declares unto them the things that God has done amongst the Gentiles. And what we have here is Paul giving a report unto uh, the, the supporting churches. Okay, he's done this before. Back in Acts chapter 14, we're not going to turn there. But in Acts 14, he went back to the church at Antioch, which is his sending church. Okay, and he reported there on the work, all that God had done. In Acts chapter 15, a previous occasion, he came to Jerusalem and he reported to his supporting church there. And basically, Paul is like a missionary on furlough, isn't he? Okay, he's come back on furlough and he's, he's now traveling around to the supporting churches reporting on all the blessings of God, the work of God. And the Jerusalem church was a supporting church. They had recognized, years earlier, they'd recognized God's calling upon Paul and they had supported him as he went forth. Just turn quickly to Galatians chapter 2 with me. Because <clears throat> we see this reference there, Galatians 2. And verse 9, it says, And when James, Cephas, and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, that gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Okay, so here we see uh, this very fact. Okay, the church of Jerusalem recognized the call of God upon Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them forth, giving them the right hand of fellowship. 
And so Paul here is reporting to a supporting church. Okay, the Jerusalem church in general did support Paul in his ministry. And we're told here that he declared particularly unto them. That word particularly there means by each one. The point is that he's, he's recounting step by step, blow by blow, if you like, what has happened, what has taken place. He's, he's filling them in in all of the details. He's meticulous here in his accounts. He wants to make sure that they have a full understanding of everything that's taken place between the last time he saw them and now. All that God has, God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. And the reason he's so meticulous is because in Jerusalem, there were still those who questioned the legitimacy of him ministering to the Gentiles. Okay? There were still those who questioned Paul's ministry. And so a detailed account was necessary. And we see also here that Paul was very careful to give God the glory, wasn't he? Verse 19 there, he says, um, And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought. He's very careful to make sure that he, he directs their attention to God. He says, God is the one doing this amongst the Gentiles. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't his team. It was God who had accomplished this work. And when Paul finished his reports, we read that the immediate response of the elders is to glory, glorify God. Okay, it says that at the start of verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. You know, the immediate response is they're giving thanks. You know, what joy for this, this sending church, one of the supporting churches, to hear that God had been doing great things through Paul and his team. However, as we read on in the verse, we see that there were some concerns that needed to be addressed. And that's our second point now this morning. We see the rumors about Paul. The rumors about Paul. Read on there in verse 20, it says, And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. And so while the elders, okay, James and the other elders, while they were pleased with what God was doing, and they're rejoicing, they're glorifying the Lord, and while they supported him in his ministry, there were many in Jerusalem who didn't. There were many in Jerusalem who were questioning what Paul was doing. You see, rumors had been spreading about Paul's teaching, which had made many wary about Paul. You know, they're wary, the standoffish, office, if you like, of, of Paul and his ministry. They're a bit wary of what he's been doing. And the elders here, they're concerned about how these brethren are going to react when they find out Paul's in town. You know, how are they going to react? What's going to happen? And they point out here at the end of verse 20 that there are now thousands of Jewish believers. You know, they say, look, there's thousands of Jews who have believed now, Paul. In Judea, in Jerusalem, in the region around, there's thousands. And these believers, they say, are still zealous of the law. You see, this is a reference to the fact that these Jews were continuing to observe and, and to be devoted to the Mosaic law. They were keeping their customs, their traditions, the things that they had done for years as Jews. They were saved by faith, yes, but they were still carrying on with these traditions, these customs. You know, we've mentioned it before in the book of Acts, but it was very difficult for the Jews to break with these things. 
very difficult for them just to change everything and give up all these things that they've been doing for centuries. These practices, these customs, these traditions. They had a hard time giving up these things that made them Jews. And these are things that gave them a national identity, weren't they? They separated them. They made them different, distinct. And you see, this is why they were offended by Paul. Because rumors were spreading that Paul was telling Jews to forsake Moses' law, to forsake their customs and traditions, and to change completely. Okay, verse 21 tells us that. It says, And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all Jews, sorry, all the Jews which are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. It says here that they are informed. Now, really, it should read they are misinformed. They're misinformed. You see, they probably received this misinformation from the Judaizers who actually didn't like Paul. You know, they worked against Paul the whole time. And so, you know, these Judaizers have probably arrived in Jerusalem before Paul and they've been spreading their rumours about him and about his teaching. You know, one of the accusations here, one of the rumours, is that Paul was teaching Jewish parents not to circumcise their children. That's one of the main things there that we read in verse 21. Okay, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither walk after their customs. This is the accusation. He's been telling the Jews, don't keep circumcising children, forsake your customs, your traditions. You know, this was something that caused a lot of offense. You put yourself in the the Jewish uh, situation here, put yourself in their shoes, if you like. Basically, if this is true, Paul is encouraging them to stop identifying as Jews. Stop identifying as being uh, the the descendants of Abraham. I mean, this was the, the sign of the covenant that God had given them that they were Abraham's descendants. This was their national identity. And if Paul was indeed teaching this, then it was greatly offensive to the Jews. You know, of course, the reality is that these were all lies, blatant lies. This was not what Paul was teaching at all. You know, while Paul had indeed taught the Gentiles didn't need to keep the law, the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised, the Gentiles didn't need to keep the customs and traditions... He had not gone around telling the Jews that they should forsake these things or telling them to stop circumcising their children. You see, Paul had no issue with the law of Moses. You know, Paul talks about it that it's a good thing, that the law of Moses shows us our sin and our wickedness, and he talks about the, the law being good in its right place and its right purpose. Paul had no issue with the law of Moses as long as it wasn't taught as a means of salvation. You go to Galatians chapter 2 with me quickly. In Galatians 2 and verse 16, we read, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And so Paul was very clear, he didn't have a problem with the law, but the law doesn't bring salvation. You can't use the law as a means of salvation. He also had a problem with it if it was used as a means of sanctification. You go to Galatians 3 and verse 2. Galatians 3 and verse 2, it says, This only would I learn of you, received you the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing of faith 
Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Same thing. He says the law doesn't sanctify you, doesn't make you right before God. And so Paul, his only argument with the law was that it's not a means of salvation, it's not a means of sanctification. But you know, as far as their Jewish traditions and customs were concerned, Paul agreed they had freedom, they had Christian liberty to continue to observe days and diets and feasts and whatever else they wanted to do and not judge or condemn someone else who didn't. You see, it's the principle that's laid out for us in Romans 14. Let's just turn there. and I want to read an extensive passage, I suppose, but Romans 14, because it really is the passage that speaks about this. <clears throat> Romans 14. Let's just read from verse 1. It says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day... To the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. For he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it naught, thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And we can keep going on. We'll stop there. Romans 14, really, Paul lays it out clear, doesn't he? Now he says that every man has a right to observe days and diets if they feel like they need to before the Lord. But they do it unto the Lord, and the person who doesn't, they can choose not to under the Lord as well. These things don't affect our spirituality, is what Paul is speaking about there. He's not talking about things that are clearly wrong according to God's word. Clearly against righteousness, clearly against morality. Okay? He's not talking about those things. He's saying these things that have no effect upon our relationship with God, it's up to the individual whether you want to do it or not do it. And Paul understood that. Paul taught that principle. You see, the believer has liberty when it comes to these things. And you know, earlier on in the book of Acts, and we've seen it, Paul had argued for the liberty of the Gentile believers, hadn't he? He'd argued that they had the grace of God, they had liberty in Christ, and they had freedom not to be made to conform to the customs and the traditions of the Jews. Well, the fact is that the same liberty or the same grace that gave the Gentiles liberty gave the Jews liberty to keep those customs. Does that make sense? The, the same reason the Gentiles were free to not exercise those things is the same reason the Jews were free to keep those things. Both were under the grace of God. Both had liberty in Christ. You see, again, as long as they weren't depending upon them for salvation, and they weren't depending upon them for sanctification, and they weren't judging others, separating from them who didn't agree, there wasn't a problem. You know, Paul himself, 
back in Acts chapter 16, he had circumcised Timothy. Remember that? He'd taken Timothy and he'd circumcised him. Why? Because he wanted Timothy to be able to minister to the Jews. You know, that alone should tell us that these are lies about Paul. Paul didn't have a problem with circumcision, did he? As long as it was done in the right way, for the right reasons. And so Paul here is falsely accused. He's being slandered. You know, he's suffering here exactly what Christ said his followers would suffer. Let's quickly turn to Matthew chapter 5. Just quickly. In Matthew 5 and verse 11, we read this. It says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Men will say things falsely against us for Christ's sake. And that's what Paul's going through. He's being slandered here. He's being lied about. And indeed, it's something that will happen to us too as believers, isn't it? Being slandered, being lied about. It shouldn't surprise us because Christ himself suffered the same thing, didn't he? At his trial, he was lied about. False accusations were brought against our Savior. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we suffer the same thing as him. But you know, the key is that we need to react to those accusations in the right way, don't we? React to those accusations in the right way manner instead of getting angry and losing our testimony by responding rashly we ought to let our testimony do the talking you know christ did that first peter 2 23 says that when he was reviled he reviled not again he let his testimony do the talking didn't he and that is what paul is now advised to do by the elders of the church at jerusalem he's advised to by his actions show these rumors to be a lie And that's our last point this morning. We see the advice of the elders, the advice of the elders. Go back with me to Matthew, uh, sorry, to Acts 21. Acts 21, and let's just read from verse 23. It says, Do therefore this that we may, sorry, do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walketh orderly and keepest the law. Now the elders of the church here at Jerusalem, they knew that these accusations against Paul, they had the potential to cause some real problems. They had the potential here to, to divide the church, to damage the unity of the body of Christ. You know, Paul's whole intention, whole reason he'd come to Jerusalem with the gift from the Gentiles was to unite the church. He's trying to bring the Gentiles and the Jews together to unite the brethren, not cause division. And so these rumors, these lies, had potential to cause some serious problem. And so the elders here, they give Paul some prudent counsel as to what they think he should do to uh, demonstrate that these rumors are false. And that's what we've just read in verse 23 and 24. Basically, their recommendation to Paul is that he demonstrate his respect for the law, respect for the traditions, the customs of the Jews, by publicly identifying with four men who have taken a vow. Okay, that's what it says in verse 23. At the end it says, we have four men which have a vow in them. Them take and purify themselves with them. Okay, basically they say there's four men under a vow. We want you to identify with these men and show 
that you actually do support the customs and the traditions of the Jews. Now, many believe the vow here in question is the Nazarite vow, the vow of separation. And the reason for that is that this vow was concluded with the shaving of your head, which is mentioned in verse 24, okay? It says, them take and purify themselves with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads, okay? So it seems to be the Nazarite vow. Let's just quickly turn to Numbers chapter 6. I just want to read about this vow very quickly. Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers 6 and verse 1, we read this. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. All the days of the vow of his separation there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled, in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of his hair no, of his head grow. Okay, so there we have the Nazarite vow. Okay, it was a vow of separation unto the Lord, and they would abstain from uh, the fruit of the vine, and they would let their hair grow, and they would do this in, uh, in service to the Lord, in separation from these things unto the Lord. And then when it was concluded, they would make sacrifice unto God, and they would cut their hair off, okay, at the conclusion of this Nazarite vow. And you see, it wouldn't have been an issue for Paul to identify with these men in this vow because Paul himself had earlier undertaken a similar vow. Go back quickly to Acts chapter 18. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 18, we read this. It says, And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Centria, for he had a vow. Remember when we looked at chapter 18, we said most likely that's a Nazarite vow that he had undertaken. And he'd shaved his head in Centria because the vow was concluded. And he wasn't at Jerusalem, so he did it there in Centria. So it wouldn't have been an issue for Paul to identify with these men because he himself had recently, not long before this, undertaken a vow himself. What we see here in Acts chapter 21 is that Paul is asked to purify himself with them. It says that there in verse 20, uh, 23, or 24, sorry. It says, take them take and purify thyself with them. And, you know, there's a lot of commentators get hung up on this and reading this week. Basically, it's not clear what this means. It's not really clear exactly what Paul is being asked to do here by purifying himself with these men. There are various suggestions as to what this means and what is involved, and I read extensively this week trying to figure it out, exactly what it means. And from reading this week, it seems to me, okay, and I might be wrong, if you don't agree with me, that's fine, it seems to me that all they're asking him to do is to join with these men in observing the vow until it's completed. Okay, so observing what the vow entailed, abstaining from wine and the fruit of the vine, and separating himself with these men until it was completed. Uh, Barnes wrote this. He said, The purifying here refers to the vows of sanctity 
which the Nazarites were to observe. They were to abstain from wine and strong drink. They were to eat no grapes, moist or dry. They were to come near no dead body. And they were to present an offering when the days of the vow were completed. And so it seems that that's what they're requesting. They're simply saying, Paul, go and join with these men in their vow until it's finished. Identify with them, partake in it until it's completed. But then they also go on and they ask him to be at charges with these men. So they say, purify yourself and be at charges with them. Well, basically what that means, they're saying, Paul, we want you to pay for their expenses. We want you also to pay for their sacrifices. They have to give at the conclusion of the vow. And this is a lot. If you read on in Numbers chapter 6 there, each one had to bring two lambs, one ram, a basket of unleavened cakes and wafers, a grain offering and a drink offering. So he had to do it for all four and probably for himself. So five lots possibly of these offerings. This is a considerable expense, isn't it? And you see, that's the whole point of the Nazarite vow. It was something that was not to be undertaken lightly because at the end it was expensive to complete the vow. But it was considered pious work amongst the Jews to provide for someone who couldn't afford it the sacrifices for them at the end of that vow. And that's what Paul's been asked to do here. He's been asked to identify with them and to take on himself the expenses. And basically by doing it, he's saying, I agree with this custom. I have no problem with this custom. I have no problem with the Jews continuing to do these things. Now, Vincent, in his word studies, he says this, The person who thus paid the expenses of poor devotees who could not afford the necessary charges shared the vow so far that he was required to stay with the Nazarites until the time of the vow had ended. For a week then, Paul, if he accepted the advice of James and the Presbyters, would have to live with four paupers in the chamber of the temple, which was set apart for this purpose, and then pay for 16 sacrificial animals and the accompanying meat offerings, he must also stand among the Nazarites during the offering of the sacrifices and look on while their heads were shaved and while they took their hair to burn it under the cauldron of the peace offerings. Basically, that's what they're asking Paul to do. Okay, So it's, it's not a light thing. They're asking him to identify with these men for a week, separate himself from everything, take this vow, and at the end of it, pay for all the expenses and stand by while it's taking place identifying with these men. The whole reason they asked him to do this is in the hope that it would alleviate the rumors. At the end of verse 24 there, it says, And all may know know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walketh orderly and keepest the law. That's their whole intention here. They want Paul to do this, to demonstrate by his actions that he doesn't have a problem with the customs and the traditions of the Jews. You know, in verse 25, they hasten to add that they haven't gone back on their work concerning the Gentiles. Just read verse 25. It says, It's touching the Gentiles which believe we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing save only that they keep themselves from, from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. Basically, they reiterate here, remember years before this, it's about eight years ago now in the book of Acts, eight years earlier, the council at Jerusalem had ratified this agreement that the the Gentiles were not under the law. They didn't have to keep the traditions and the customs of the Jews. 
And here they, they basically remind Paul, and they say, Paul, we're not going back on our word. We have no intention of bringing the Gentiles under the law. In verse 26 now, we see that Paul humbly accepts their advice. Okay, It says in verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. You know, Paul didn't have to accept their advice, did he? He's an apostle. <laughs> He's an apostle of the Lord. This is just the elders of the church in Jerusalem. He could have, you know, he stood up and said, no, I'm not going to take your advice, I'm an apostle. But Paul humbles himself here, doesn't he? He humbly, he listens to the advice of these men and he goes with these four men up to the temple and he announces his, his intentions there. He informs the priest that, you know, he's going to do this with these men and at the end he's going to pay for their sacrifices. He basically tells the priest when the date will be that's going to take place. And you know, the reason that Paul could consent to do this is because the Nazarite vow was strictly voluntary. It was voluntary. It was not essential, it was not seen as essential for gaining acceptance with God. It was not seen as something you must do to be saved or you must do to be sanctified. It was a voluntary thing. And that's why Paul here could participate without compromising his convictions concerning the law. You know, what Paul demonstrated here is the principle that he speaks about in 1 Corinthians. Just turn over there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll begin reading from verse 19. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19 we read, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That's what Paul's doing here. He's following his own advice. Okay? He's doing exactly what he speaks about in First Corinthians chapter 9. You see, Paul was willing to conform to the culture and the custom of the people that he was ministering to in order to win people for Christ. And in this case, to keep the unity of the body of Christ, the brethren. You see, when he was amongst the Jews, Paul was willing to lay aside his Christian liberty. Now, he had right not to keep customs. He didn't need to do it. But he laid aside that Christian liberty and he kept the customs of the Jews. Why? so he wouldn't offend them. And when he was amongst the Gentiles, he laid aside his Jewish customs and traditions so he wouldn't offend the Gentiles. Now, of course, we must understand that Paul would never have compromised the truth. He would never have compromised righteousness to try and win people for Christ. Paul wouldn't have done that, and he didn't do that. You see, Paul's stated purpose for this trip to Jerusalem was, as I said earlier, to bring relief to the poor, yes, but also to unify the Gentiles and the Jews. And so Paul therefore willingly, humbly submitted to the direction of the Jewish elders in order to keep the unity of the body of Christ. You know, Paul here was willing to sacrifice a great deal. A great deal for the sake of church harmony. You know, he gave up his right to defend himself. He could have stood up and said, it's all lies. 
but he gave up that right to defend himself with his, his words, with his preaching. He gave up the exercise of his Christian liberty and he was even willing to pay out of his own pocket for the sacrifices of these four men, which was a lot, to maintain unity. You see, this whole encounter here teaches us valuable lessons about the lengths that we should go to in order to maintain unity within the body of Christ. Now, we're not talking about compromising doctrinal truth. We're not talking about uh, compromising for the sake of unity. We've been talking about that on Wednesday nights in Matthew 5, being peacemakers. We're not to compromise for the sake of peace. Absolutely not. That's not what we're talking about here. But you see, we ought to be willing to lay aside our Christian liberty for the sake of the weaker brother. Just go back quickly, and we're almost done this morning, to Romans chapter 14. just want to read towards the end of the chapter there. In Romans 14, and just read with me from verse 13. It says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Romans 14 there sums it up well. If our meat offends the weaker brother, then we should give it up. That's the whole point here. If something that you and I are doing is causing offense, and we're not talking about, as I said, about righteousness or morality or obeying God. I'm not talking about that. We all must, always must obey God. We all might always must walk righteously and holy and upright before God. But if something we're doing is causing offense, what we're eating or where we're going or what we're doing, and it's not sinful, but it's causing a brother offense, a weaker brother to stumble, then we should, like Paul, be willing, for the sake of unity and love, to lay aside our liberty and restrain ourselves for them. And that's a difficult thing, isn't it? But that's, what, that's the whole teaching of this and the teaching of Romans 14. That's what we have to learn to do as believers. Be willing to lay aside our liberty for the sake of the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, we read this. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that should be our desire. So as much as we can, live peaceably with all men, but especially with other believers, and not cause them to stumble. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and the lessons that we've been able to learn from his life. And Lord, we see him here lay aside his Christian liberty. And Lord, restrain himself and, and keep the customs of the Jews so that he might not cause offense. And Lord, I pray you help us to, to walk in the same manner. Help us to know, Lord, when it's right for us to give up our Christian liberty for the sake of not offending others, for the sake of unity, Lord, uh, unity within the body of Christ. Lord, may you give us wisdom in this area, wisdom going forward, we pray in Jesus' name.